Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is... Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm John, and this is our Diamond Jubilee. This is episode 60, which, you know, that's pretty meaningless when we, when we do one of these things most weeks. But nonetheless, you know, I, I love a round number. Although, is, is 60 a round number? Is episode 70 going to feel special? Or episode 110? Surely as we get higher, just ending in zero will become increasingly meaningless. Maybe this episode isn't special after all. But but whether it's special or not, we do we do have a special guest. Richard Florida is an American urbanist based at the University of Toronto. He's also the driving force behind the Atlantic Cities website, which you probably know by the name it now goes under, which is City Lab, and which I've always suspected to have been one of the things that inspired my masters to launch City Metric back in 2014. Richard has got a new book out at the moment. It's called The New Urban Crisis, and he was in London this week to give a lecture at the LSE to promote it. I was I was lucky enough to get half an hour of his time. Uh, you're about to, to hear that recording. I should warn you, we were in a fairly noisy hotel bar, so there's, there's quite a lot of background noise. There's conversational hubbub. There's the occasional sound of coffee being ground or cocktails being shaken. But, but it is all, I hope, audible. You join us, just as Richard has noticed, the bright yellow bollocks to Brexit sticker on the back of my phone. Yeah, I just got back from Conservative Party conference and they were handing them out outside. And really funny. After a couple of days at Tory conference, I started going a bit weird and accepted one. Um, so, so, yeah, you're here to, to publicise your new book, The New Urban Crisis. Do you want to kind of give us a very brief sense of the, the thesis? What is The New Urban Crisis? Oh, my God, that's such a big question. I have no idea. You've got like 300 pages. Like, like, yeah, you do like, that we'll, in like, here, we'll be here like all day. In, in like three minutes, yeah, that like, would be I'll good. I'll give you the Fidel yeah. Castro version yeah. and we'll, we'll never leave. But... Um, I think, you know, I grew up during the old urban crisis. I was 10 years old in 1967 when my city, the city of my birth, Newark, New Jersey, exploded into race riots. The city was on fire. There were people shooting. There were literally not only police, but tanks in the street. That was a crisis of urban decay, of suburban outmigration. You know, people left to go to the suburbs. Industry left to go to the suburbs. The factory my dad worked at closed. My mom took ads in the local paper. It was called the Star Ledger. It literally was ringed with barbed wire. That was a crisis of economic dysfunction. I think what happened is the urban revival of the past 20 years has been so strong and has occurred at such a striking velocity that now in cities like London or New York or San Francisco, we have a new urban crisis of success. It's not a crisis of failure. 
it is a crisis of so many people have come back and so many companies and not just British companies but like high-tech companies like Google and Amazon and startups have all descended and it's driven up the cost of land and it's driven up the cost of housing and really divided us into in these small areas of concentrated advantage and, and but still as you know there was a report I think it was today that they were talking on sort of London and even though London economy's back poverty is like at record rates so you also, in the midst of all this affluence and wealth and urban revitalization, have these deep areas of economic disadvantage and poverty. That's the new urban crisis. Yeah, one of the things I found interesting in the book was this idea that actually in a lot of cities, after you take into account housing costs, you're, you're better off living in Houston than New York if you're poor, basically. Is what it is. And I think if you're poor is the important thing. So, you know, I was doing this research, and I think... You know, if you look at my earlier work, like Rise of the Creative Class, people say, well, what did I get wrong? I actually think I identified accurately the fact that knowledge workers wanted to come back to the city, and I identified accurately that the creative class was urban-oriented. And it's funny, when I wrote that book, said, you know, Florida's crazy, this will never happen, what's going to happen is there's going to be a financial or economic crisis or technology crisis, they're all going to go back to the suburbs. But I think I underpredicted the ferocity of this urban revival. And, and what also I think I underpredicted, it took me a while to figure this out, on average, on average, if you look at wages are higher in London, wages are higher in New York, wages are higher in San Francisco. If you look on average, the average person is, believe it or not, better off in London, even with the high housing costs. But what happened is we then looked at how a knowledge worker does, a blue-collar worker and a, a low-wage service worker, a server in a restaurant, somebody who's a short-order cook, somebody who works in a retail shop or in a clerical job. That's when the thing really hit us. The creative worker, the knowledge worker, the software techie was still better off. I know this sounds strange because it's like in San Francisco or London or Boston or New York. It was the blue-collar worker, but especially the service worker, who got really nailed. So I think the urban revival benefits maybe a third, a third of the workforce, leaving the other two-thirds further and further behind. To what extent is this just a... Okay, I'm going to phrase this carefully. I sometimes wonder if this is just a result of the crash, because there have been so few good places to put your money, put your capital recently, that it's all flooded into, you know, if you're on the square foot of London or New York yeah. or San Francisco, you've done all right. So is it possible this housing problem is a transitory no. phenomenon that's going to go away when interest rates no. normalize? I think it is, because people said it was transitory when I first said it. And then they said, no, it's going to go back to the suburbs. They're not going to want to live in these cities because the cities are funky and there's crime and they're going to be crammed up in little flats. And then the crash came. And I, I'll tell you the truth. My editor at The Atlantic said to me, you have to write an article. We want to commission you to write an article, which is how the crash is going to destroy New York and London, how all of these financial companies are going to go to Dallas or Houston or Shanghai or wherever. And I said, no, wrong. What's going to happen? And I wrote the article is that London and New York are going to... And they thought it was crazy. Literally, they thought I was nuts. They were like, okay, we'll publish it. It's counterintuitive. New York and London and San Francisco are going to come back stronger than ever because they're the biggest, the most resilient, the most dynamic, the most clustered, and they came back bigger than I would have predicted. So, but you're right. They were safe havens to put money. And I think now... What? Well, one thing is they're overbuilt for luxury. So in some ways, you're right. These high, 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 super expensive flats can't command those prices. So they're going to get slightly more affordable. But still, London and New York and San Francisco are going to be the places that continue to attract talent unless 
something like the Brexit or Donald Trump. Some kind of real nationalistic, populistic backlash really limits their ability to attract global talent, but I, I don't think that will happen. I think that, that what's really happening is this clustering of talent, this clustering of economic assets, this clustering of knowledge. The, the economic desirability of these cities is what's causing them to be so popular, and they just don't have enough housing to fit all the people that want to live there. So what are the character? I mean, you describe these places as, as superstar cities. What are the characteristics that make up a superstar city? Well, they have to have a certain threshold of population. They have to be pretty big. They don't have to be as big as London, but I would think a minimum of about five and a half million people in the metropolitan area. They have to have great universities and great knowledge institutions. And one of the things people, many people, not necessarily people who live in London, don't get. London probably has, of any metropolitan area in the world, the largest concentration of elite knowledge institutions. If you take the universities here and then, of course, in the area, in the ring, it's better than Boston, it's better than the Bay Area, it's better than New York. You mean in, in the, like Oxford and Cambridge, yeah, like you, an hour away? You don't of. even need to take yeah. those. If you just take the great institutions in London itself, <laughs> if you include those, it's off the chart. Because I've done this. I've actually done added up the elite academic institutions. Great airport. If you don't have a great airport, um, and you have one, well, it's congested, but if you don't have a great airport with connections, and so those are the things. And I think the most important one is that you have to be open to global immigrants. You have to be open to global talent. So there are very few cities, metropolitan areas in the world, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, London, Toronto, Vancouver, you know, we can go down, uh, Sydney. There are very few metropolitan areas in the world that have these characteristics. So, so it's not surprising that you have this global population of talent cramming themselves into this very limited number of superstar cities They've gotten the most innovation, they've gotten the most tech companies, they've gotten the greatest increases in productivity, but they've also been slammed by this new urban crisis. As, as you all know, like one of the ongoing issues in urban policy in, in this country is that there is a huge gap between London and the rest. Um, and there's all sorts of policies underway to try and affect that, but I don't think anyone's really sold the idea. I mean, what, what can we do to sort of narrow the divide and kind of spread some of their love? So... I mean, you hit at the nub of the book, the new urban crisis, and I say the real issue that we confront in advanced societies today is not economic inequality. It's very important, the, the rising gap between the 1% and the rest, the haves and the have-nots, but the real issue is spatial inequality. And the spatial inequality manifests itself in two dimensions. The first dimension is the increasing gap between the winter cities. I call this winner-take-all urbanism. The winter cities like London or New York or San Francisco and the rest of the world, but particularly the rest of their countries. So that's one. And the second dimension is that the winter cities are increasingly seeing their own winner-take-all pattern where the wealthy and the talented are cramming themselves into a limited number of neighborhoods in those cities and the gap between them and the rest is growing. Well, I think we have to do a couple things. One, I, I think we need to ensure that our economics, what I worry about is this populist backlash, which says the way out of this is to screw London, screw New York, screw San Francisco, <laughs> develop anti-urban policies, anti-innovation policies, anti-immigration policies, because London really is the economic generator of the UK economy. So I think the one thing you could do, especially in an economy that's this physically small, you can develop transit linkages, high-speed rail, all sorts of connectivity 
You already see that with some of the areas of the older industrial cities surrounding London, but you can develop a strategy of connecting other parts of the UK economy towards London. Second thing you can do is develop strategies that those localities can use to develop stronger economies themselves. And thirdly, I just think we need more inclusive economic development strategies. We need to make sure that everyone participates not just the privileged third, that everyone participates in economic growth. And one of the messages I'm here talking about is how we develop inclusive economic growth strategies in London and throughout the United Kingdom. And I think as we develop that narrative and conversation, then at each and every local level, there becomes new attempts and new strategies to develop more inclusive structures. One of the things I, I found very interesting about the kind of conclusions you come to in your book is that you were basically making the case for what we call social housing, basically, you know, subsidised state housing, which has not been a, a, a mainstream idea in this country for, for some decades. I mean, how do you make the case that some people deserve subsidy, effectively, so here, like to live in a place that they wouldn't be able to afford market rents in? Here's what I think. Um, I believed that the national governments would say this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think the old and outmoded thinking that I suffered from was somehow the national government in the United Kingdom or the United States would come in to save the day and enact a national housing policy or national urban policy. So I voted for President Clinton for two terms. I voted for President Obama. I bemoaned President Bush and cried when Trump was elected. Didn't we all? But the fact of the matter is, President Clinton disappointed me and President Obama disappointed me. The fact of the matter is the urban revival was built locally. It was built by groups of people and community organizations and chambers of commerce and real estate developers and what we call anchor institutions. And this was something we talked about this morning. Every city has anchor institutions, big companies that are located in that city big tech companies, big real estate developers, universities, medical centers, hospitals. 
And those anchor institutions in most cities were the ones who brought about the urban revival, not just in London and New York and Boston, but in Pittsburgh. I lived in Pittsburgh when the universities and the college campuses and local government worked together to say, how could we rebuild Pittsburgh? It was all about building clusters of industry, clusters of talent, attracting people, nothing about inclusion. So what, I, what we have to do today is broaden the conversation with anchor institutions about how do we do inclusive development and inclusive growth. Anchor institutions, whether they're universities or hospitals, well, universities in the United States provide affordable housing for their professors. <coughs> Some of them provide affordable rental housing, which they own. Others give them mortgage assistance. But the service workers who work in those universities get nothing, right? The doctors can make enough money or have affordable housing close to the hospital. Uh, the large corporations pay their knowledge workers very well, but pay their service workers next to nothing. I think we need a pledge on the part of these anchor an anchor's pledge where these anchor institutions will pledge that they will work with the community to figure out what is the right mix of affordable housing. To what degree do they want to put workforce housing so that their workers can work near, live near where they work? To what degree are they willing to pledge that they will engage in upgrading those service jobs? And I think what the community can trade back to the anchor, if you want your university to expand, or your hospital center to expand, and you want a zoning variance, or you want to go taller, or if you're a real estate developer and you want to build a new development in London on this property and you want some different flexibility, or you're a tech company that wants to come here and build a new campus, like some are, that you can be part of this inclusive prosperity process. And in return for us allowing you to do that and make a lot of money, you're going to give back to the community. So effectively, it's getting employers more involved in housing market as well. I don't think there's, I wish, you know, I wish that there was some big national policy for urban betterment that would come down, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be city by city, local actors by local actors doing what's right to create their own inclusive development strategy. I, I hope I was wrong. But, but I certainly don't see with a person like Donald Trump and a divided United States. The UK may be better poised to do this, especially with some of the political dynamics that are happening now. But even in Canada, you know, where, where Justin Trudeau is our prime minister, and I was part of the conversation about a national housing strategy, it seems to me the real innovations are occurring at the provincial, which is the state, the local state level, or the local community level. Um, not at the national level. I think it's going to have to be because the problems of Manchester and Leeds and London are so, and Birmingham are so different that it's actually going to take a different mix of local programs and policies to address them. There is no one size that fits all. Well, I mean, one of the difficulties we face in sort of urban policy in in the UK is that most of our cities don't have that kind of representative level. I mean, like, yep. London and Manchester have mayors now. There's one for the West Midlands. But you mentioned Leeds. There is nothing covering Leeds. So it's I, a very weak... I mean, how... Literally, who can take control? To so I say problems? there's a short game and a long game. The short game has to be organizing the anchor institutions and local stakeholders and local civic activists and local community groups around this issue of inclusive prosperity. And broadening the narrative. The narrative right now is either growth or equity. Those narratives have to be put together because growth and equity, development and inclusivity go hand in hand. We can no longer be torn between, I'm going to grow, I'm going to have equity, it's not working, it's ripping us to pieces. So the short game has to be engaging the anchors and other local stakeholders around how do we do it. The long game has to be devolution of power.
And you know, if you ask me, one of the biggest obstacles we face in contemporary capitalism is this dysfunctional nation state. I mean, you know, when Donald Trump really grabs holes of the power, the nuclear trigger of the most powerful nation on earth, and you think there's 350 million people, 350 metropolitan areas, 3,500 uh, 3,500 counties and countless tens of thousands of municipalities. And this one guy has all this power. The UK is similar, not quite as bad, but similar. Who in God's name created this stupid governance structure? Like, you couldn't have made a worse one. Empowering an imperial presidency, an imperial prime ministry, and a nation state that's dysfunctional. So we have to engage in a long-term dialogue about how to put power, and, and the principle for this is called subsidiarity. The power belongs to the level of government that can boast and most effectively deliver that service. So probably the national defense strategy needs to be national, but neighborhood improvement needs to be neighborhood-based. Transit probably needs to be metropolitan-based. So we need to develop a governance structure which is in tune for the economy we have. That's the long game. I'm encouraged by the Metro Mayor movement, but Lord God, you need to do more. No, they're not. I mean, even the mayor of London is a much weaker office than uh, Bill de Blasio is in New York. It's just and Bill de Blasio has far too little power. I mean, think about it. Even in the United States, the large metropolitan areas and cities like New York basically collect a whole bunch of tax revenues that are then redistributed to less advantaged parts of the country that are red. Um, so the better strategy is to have local places collect their tax revenues and, and have the ability to distribute them and use them to build the economies that, and societies they need to build. And what would happen is, and there's good, good work on this now from both the left and the right, and there's actually a coming together, that you would get this kind of competitive federalism in which jurisdictions would really compete. Some would try to compete based on low wages. Some would try to compete based on transit investment, both on the left and the right. The argument is increasingly that that would lead to a, a, a higher road strategy. Instead of everyone going to the low road, that over time this competition would force places to attract people, to generate talent, to actually raise their, to raise their uh, strategy. I mean, I guess my concern with with pursuing that too fully is, at a certain point, like, don't you get places that are going to struggle to catch up? And if you look at somewhere like Flint, Michigan, yeah. where they, they've just been left to the fact that they're like, you can't drink the water in Flint, Michigan, yeah. and nobody is coming to help them. There is no economic policy that the city leaders can introduce that's going to fix those pipes. I mean, how, surely there needs to be some kind of redistribution. So there? I would say three things with regard to that. One, I would even rather have a dysfunctional mayor like Rob Ford, who I dealt with in Toronto, who was doing crack and abusing his office, than a dysfunctional president or prime minister. So I think there's enough municipalities that you can deal with some dysfunction. On your question of redistribution, I think there are two issues. One, when it comes to places like Flint, I would hope over time that we could have representative bodies of cities and coalitions of cities so that the cities themselves could help provide redistribution to places like Flint. Ben Barber, the late political scientist, argued this with his global parliament of mayors. His argument was that when Trump was trying to cut aid for U.S. sanctuary cities, that a coalition of global cities would actually provide aid back uh, to these U.S. cities. So you would hope, look, Donald Trump isn't going to provide. Red America is not going to provide one dime of aid to Flint. You would hope that a coalition of progressive, liberally-minded, blue cities around the world could provide that assistance. And finally, with regard to rights, 
cities and communities are often the place to pioneer women's rights, minority rights, gay rights. And you would want that to continue, but you also need court protections. And, and so most people who, who write on this say that you shouldn't look at it as complete devolution. You would want protections between cities, between levels of governments, and with regard to the courts at multiple levels that would both provide redistribution and protect rights. So it's not an either or. That federalist system would work as a dynamic system. Which cities do you think are kind of doing interesting things in this space internationally? Where, where's worth watching? Well, my optimism comes from the fact that cities are contested politically. They're not gated suburbs. Some people might say, well, London, this, a neighborhood in London is a gated suburb and there's all rich people. But there are many other neighborhoods of London that are quite diverse, that are quite low income. So cities are contested terrains. And I think we actually have a very interesting group of mayors. So if you take your own mayor, Sadiq Khan, and what he's trying to deal with building a creative and inclusive and sustainable London. Bill de Blasio. I might not agree with everything Bill de Blasio is doing, but here is a guy who's really trying to think about affordable housing and how do we make a city that's more inclusive. Eric Garcetti in Los Angeles, working on the minimum wage and upgrading service jobs. Mitch Landry in New Orleans, who's a fantastically integrate, interesting guy. And Hildaga in Paris, who's trying to make the city safer and more pedestrian friendly. So I think we do have a new crop of mayors and a new crop of cities. The question is no city is doing it right and no city has the perfect mix of policies because we're just at the beginning of this. And, you know, when people ask me, they say, when I talk to mayors, very progressive mayors, social democratic mayors, mayors who really tried, why didn't this work? We've done too little, too much silos, and, and not a comprehensive enough solution. This is a big scale problem that requires a much bigger scale solution. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm confident, you know, the way I look at it, if you had asked me 20 years ago, would we really revitalize cities to the extent we have today? Would shortage be remade? Would Harlem be undergoing an economic revival? Would Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn be a place that people wanted to move? Would Pittsburgh be a place that's now on where I lived, which was declining, which would be on everybody's list of an innovative city? Would Detroit have a wave of investment in their downtown? I would have said there's no way. So if we could achieve the urban revival over the past two decades, and now it looks so big that it's generated a new urban crisis, I think over the next 10 to 20 years, we could begin to see the change to a more inclusive urban revival. And I think cities, I don't think national governments are going to lead that. I think cities and combinations of cities are going to lead that. So, yeah, that was that was Richard Florida. It was very nice to meet him at last. Even if there were even if there were some things about that recording that wasn't ideal, at least they didn't completely screw it up, which is frankly what happened when I interviewed Ben Barber back on episode 13, which is very depressing because it's always nice when we get actual sort of great thinkers of the of the urbanism world on here. And it's it, it pains me to this day quite how badly I screwed up the recording of Ben Barber. But, you know, why not check that out anyway? A couple of bits of housekeeping before we move on. In a shocking development, I can actually tell you what's going to be on the next couple of episodes because I'm thinking thinking ahead for once. Uh, next week, episode 61, we're going to be talking about fun, the notion of playable cities with uh, the architect and designer Osman Hayek. Week after that, number 62, uh, is even more exciting, if anything, because Stephanie's coming back. It's probably, it's hopefully Thursday night or Friday morning as you're listening to this. We're going to record uh, that episode on the Friday night, actually. It's going to be a couple of weeks in advance. 
But if you if you do listen to this early enough and you have any suggestions for what you'd like us to talk about, then then do feel free to tweet us because we're we're, we're still working that out. You know, you feed, might as well feed into this. Uh, and you know, as ever, usual stuff. If you give us a nice review on iTunes, then then that would be lovely. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.